Although the RAND research showed us how much inequality has increased, it didn't explain why it increased. What RAND found is that over the past 40 years, had inequality remained the same, levels of inequality, the bottom 90% would have earned $50 trillion more. Basically, we found that the why was the direct and measurable effect of a bunch of very specific policy decisions made along the way in recent decades. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. All right, so Goldie, anyone... Uh, who has a beating pulse or who has listened to our podcast uh, knows that <laughs> inequality is a thing uh, and that uh, there's a lot of it. We've uh, gone over, for instance, the RAND report, which showed this giant gap between uh, what the median worker does earn and would have earned if they had been held harmless by the last 40 or 50 years of neoliberal economic policy but what we've never really done a great job of is explaining why that is. Like what happened to create that giant sort of hole in everybody's pocketbooks? And, and, and to reiterate, what, what Rand found is that over the past 40 years, had inequality remained the same, levels of inequality uh, between distributions remained the same, the, the bottom 90% would have earned $50 trillion more uh, over the past 40 years, and they did, in 2019, it would have been $2.5 trillion more income going to the bottom 90%. And so a lot of the inequality we've seen, this radical rise of inequality, is due to this massive upward redistribution of income and and therefore also uh, a redistribution of wealth over the past 40 years. Yeah, and so although the RAND research showed us sort of how much inequality has increased, it didn't explain at all why it increased, what factors drove that giant gap between the earnings of the wealthiest and everybody else. Uh, but now our friends at the Economic Policy Institute uh, have a new research report that does explain all that, and they've done this amazing job of showing what policy choices over the last 45 years contributed to this, the inequality that we now have. And in particular, uh, their research shows that the sort of dominant narratives that people have believed that inequality was caused by uh, a skills gap or was caused by um, automation or globalization, none of those things really are true. At the end of the day, it was all a matter of uh, domestic policy choices enacted by both Democrats and Republicans that suppressed wages uh, for the majority of citizens. And so um, it's fantastic research, and it'll be fascinating uh, to have them talk about it. Well, I'm Larry Michelle. I'm an economist at the Economic Policy Institute, and I'm glad to talk about our recent report, which explains wage suppression over the last four decades as a product of 
the policy decisions made on behalf of the rich and uh, corporate America. And I'm Josh Bivens. I'm the research director at EPI, and I'm a macroeconomist by training and have been sort of looking at the issues of inequality pretty much since I was hired by EPI about 19 years ago. So guys, in the last 40 years, we've seen uh, a significant divergence between productivity growth and wage growth. So let's start with having you guys classify the scale of that divergence. What, what are the stats? As many people know that in the 50s and 60s and early 70s, when the economy got larger, as the pie grew, as productivity grew, there was a corresponding growth in the uh, wages and benefits of a typical worker. But that broke down in the, in the, in the late 1970s, uh, such that there was a lot of growth in productivity, but not much growth at all in the median hourly wages and benefits of, you know, for the typical worker. We measure that in the following way. We note that between 1979 and 2017, that the productivity growth uh, net of depreciation uh, grew 56%. That's a fair amount, but the median hourly compensation, the, the compensation of a typical worker only grew 13%. That's a 43 percentage point difference. And that is basically what I think has been taken from the working class and distributed to the upper uh, earners in the, in, the, in the wage scale and to corporate America. Wow. Okay. So is there a non-percentage way to characterize how much working people gave up in wages over that time period? Uh, absolutely, there is. So the median hourly compensation in, in 2017 was $23.15. Uh, we calculate that if workers had actually received the full benefits of the growth of productivity, their wage, their hourly compensation for typical worker would have been $33.10. But basically that's $10 higher. So there's $10 an hour that was lost to the typical worker because they didn't benefit from the growth in productivity the way that workers used to in the 50s and 60s. Now, $10 an hour is a lot. That's the equivalent of roughly $20,000 a year for a worker who works you know, full-time and full year, You know, someone who works mm -hmm. 2,080 hours a year. And, and so for a, a two-worker household, that's uh, over $41,000 a year. That's huge. Yeah, this is not peanuts. Yeah. You know, it, this has really mattered. And you know, we think that uh, this is what needs to be explained, that wage inequality has essentially, and, and income inequality overall, and the problems that the working class has faced is, is really linked to this uh, lack of uh, connection between what workers are paid and the, and the rising productivity. It was not the fact that the economy didn't grow or the productivity didn't grow. It's the problem is that whatever growth there was, the pie expanded, but it didn't get to the vast majority. And that's what really matters. And that's what we seek to explain. So wait, you're telling me that a rising tide does not actually lift all boats? Yeah, it turns out uh, it may have been true back in uh, JFK's time, but it's definitely not true in the last 40 years. So the, you know, certainly uh, the listeners of this podcast are, are, you know, keenly aware of the degree to which, uh, in one way or another, you know, working and middle-class people have been left behind by the economy. And, and I know you're familiar with the RAND research. I think that the thing that we really want to zero in on in this interview, and the thing that's so 
groundbreaking or about your research is not the how much, but the why. I think that's what we think the real contribution is. Like, so we, we've got the, the wedge between how much productivity grew, what was the potential for people to have had wage growth over that time period versus the actual wages they had. And then see if we can start filling in that wedge with sort of very identifiable causes. And we were able to, I mean, basically we found that the why, the reason why that wedge developed, the reason why wages pulled away from productivity in that time period was the direct and measurable effect of a bunch of very specific policy decisions made along the way in recent decades. The outcome of each of these decisions was to redistribute leverage and bargaining power and labor markets away from typical workers and towards capital owners and top business management. And this research is kind of all sitting out there. It's a, it's a bunch of great work done by smart people. But what we did in this paper is put it together and highlight just what it means and scale each individual bit of research against that overall wedge that, that we measure between pay and productivity. I sort of think of it a little bit like the, the fable of the blindfolded people all touching one part of an elephant and trying to describe what it looks like. We, we combined all these descriptions and came out with, I think, a pretty accurate and convincing picture of what the combination of all these intentional policies look like in terms of their effect in suppressing wage growth. Okay, so what are they? You know, let's punch through some of them. Yeah, let's start at the top with what are the policies that have had the biggest effect? The sort of three biggies um, are one is sort of what I would call the sort of either the intentional engineering or the toleration of excess unemployment for most of the past 40 years. And that comes in two variants. One variant is the economy gets into a recession and policymakers are just way too they don't try hard enough to get us out of it, don't try hard enough to get us to sort of full recovery. I think that's the really good description of sort of what happened over the past, you know, 12 years after the Great Recession, just sort of no urgency at all in trying to use fiscal policy to, to get the economy back where it was. I think in an earlier period, the real culprit was the Federal Reserve. Basically, they would see a recovery start to happen, unemployment would start to fall, and then in the name of fighting inflation, but often like a completely phantom inflation and inflation in their models, but one that had not appeared in the real world yet, they would engineer by raising interest rates, higher unemployment to really sort of sap workers' bargaining power in the labor market. So that engineering and toleration of excess uh, unemployment, that, that's a really big one. Second really big one is just the all-out assault on workers' right to bargain collectively and to form unions um, that has happened over that period, leading to a much smaller share of workers who are in unions. And this has two effects, obviously. One is people who are once in a union and now aren't, so they no longer get that union wage premium mechanically. But then also just big sectors of the economy that once had their wages influenced by the unionized part of the sector um, so you had a bunch of non-union workers who actually lost out because their sector was no longer unionized. There's no longer that threat effect on their own employers. Even if they were never union, maybe they always had to pay slightly better wages. So that sort of de-unionization effect is another biggie. And then the effect of sort of globalization on the terms we did it, which is sort of the terms of trade agreements that basically put frontline workers in the United States in sort of complete competition globally with the, the labor markets around the world, but carved out a bunch of protections for sort of corporate profits and very highly paid professionals. Those three things combined are a really big chunk of the story, like well over half of the overall divergence we find. And then we've got, you know, a host of policies along the way as well. Basically, employers waking up every day to find a standard or institution that actually provided a little bulwark 
to employers' power in the, to employees' power in the labor market. They tried to you know focus on like a laser and take out. The fact that these policies individually and collectively work to suppress wages over 40 years, that wasn't like incidental. It wasn't like, oh, we were doing this for this other reason. And oh, by the way, unfortunately, it happened to suppress wages. Uh, you basically conclude that, well, that's kind of the intent of these policies, um, which is to uh, suppress wages, right? Explain explain why, like with the, with the Federal Reserve's actions, why it is that they were so eager to um, pull back the economy when unemployment started to drop. Yeah, we're pretty confident in the intent here for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, like on, on the easy issues, like the fact that the minimum wage was just throttled for almost decades at a time as inflation just battered its purchasing power or the assault on unions. I mean, there's obviously a group of employers who just make higher profits because minimum wages are lower or they don't have to deal with the unionized workforce. I think the the slight puzzle is why did many sort of all the way, even on the center left, why were they okay with some of these policies? And I think even in that case, like the predicted distributional effect of these changes was never in dispute or in doubt. Like you lower the minimum wage, low wage workers do worse. You, you block the ability to form unions, unionized workers and the people who work in those sectors, they're going to make less. The claim was always that, you know, there's, yes, there's going to be some regressive distributional outcome, but these are frictions that keep the economy from operating more efficiently. And as these frictions are removed, aggregate growth is going to leap forward so much that people are actually going to be better off. Like their relative slice of the pie might shrink, but their overall amount of the pie will grow because of this aggregate growth. And in that case, they've just failed miserably. We've actually had slower growth at the same time. We've had a lot less equal growth. I think the case of the Federal Reserve is the the one that doesn't fit this perfectly. Like I think um, it's the one policy where I think you could quibble a little bit with the intent, but I think the dynamic is still there. I mean, everybody knows that all else equal, low unemployment is good. And with the sort of last hired, first fired dynamic in labor markets where historically discriminated against workers are, are the last ones to see gains from really low unemployment. Everyone knows that low unemployment, you know, it's not just good, it's also progressive. And so there must have been some justification for why aren't we trying to maximize how low we can make unemployment go? And their argument in real time would have been, well, the 1970s showed us that inflation is a genie that's always trying to storm out of the bottle. And if we ever let it get a foothold in the economy, we're going to have to engineer a really bad recession. So we have to keep unemployment you know, at this pretty high level all the time to keep that, that inflation genie in the bottle. But I think it sort of fits in the overall rubric of all of them. It's like, yes, this is bad for some workers, but it's going to be good because it's going to unleash overall growth. And in every case, that overall growth argument has turned out to be a huge failure as well. Yeah. Although the donor class did really well. Nick, you, you saw a lot of growth over the yeah, past uh, exactly. few decades, didn't you? Yeah. And I, you know, I just think that if you peel back some of the layers of the onion on the politics of all of this, there was a group of people who were really, 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 really benefiting from this arrangement and were encouraging it. And I guess if I had to guess, I, it'd be charitable to uh, the folks at the Federal Reserve. It, it certainly is true that people were not tracking carefully the distributional effects of this way back. Inequality, to a certain extent, snuck up on a lot of policymakers. 
certainly they should have been paying more attention, but well, all of a sudden I, it was a I lot worse. I don't think you need to be charitable, Nick. I mean, Larry, <laughs> um, correct me if I'm wrong, but was Volcker pretty blunt about his objectives at the time in the in the early 80s about bringing down wages and, and crushing unions' ability to force wages up? He saw rising wages as the as the the major force behind inflation. Thank you for bringing that up, Goldie. Uh, yes. Uh, and, you know, one of the biggest uh, leap forwards in inequality and wage suppression was actually the, you know, the period between 1979 and 1985, where we had very high unemployment, a huge uh, surge of imports, and a, a big crushing of, of unions. And so, you know, that was intended, actually. You know, the high interest rates helped, in fact, to fuel the uh, the import surge, too. So, so because through the change in the dollar. So, um, yeah, this was intentional. And in and, and every recovery, they always wanted to shoot it at, at, at wages whenever they seemed to pick up, you know, and, and it used to be the model was, you know, take away the uh, champagne bowl, you know, before the party ever gets started. Right. They didn't wait to see inflation start to rise. No, no. And there's been a huge change. I think yeah. we should acknowledge how things have really changed very much for this current administration and for the current administration of the Federal Reserve Board. They are really dedicated to getting fast to, to low unemployment and caring about both inequality and, and racial equity. And it's really a remarkable uh, turn, especially for the head of a Federal Reserve Board that was nominated by a Republican, to tell you the truth. Yeah, no, that's true. So let's talk about unemployment because you point out how much higher unemployment uh, how much more unemployment we've tolerated over the past 40 years than we did uh, during the previous 30. What did those numbers look like and, and, and what type of impact did they have? So basically, there's I mean, a couple ways you can look at it, but you know, take 1979 to 2019. So even before COVID, we'll take that crazy spike in unemployment out of the equation. Um, over that period, unemployment averaged about 6.2%. If you look at sort of the 30 years before that, it averaged about 5.2%, so like a full percentage point higher in the second period. And if you even take like official estimates of the natural rate of unemployment, that's supposed to be the unemployment rate below which you get accelerating inflation. So it's supposed to be kind of like your long run target. Even that sort of, you know, and I think these measures are too conservative anyway, but take them as given for a second. The natural unemployment, natural rate of unemployment estimated by CBO is about 5.2%. So even based on a too conservative target, we consistently missed that by a full percentage point over that period. And basically, you know, I'd say for sort of the median worker, every percentage point of unemployment is going to slow their wage growth by about 0.3 to 0.5 percentage points, which may not sound like a lot, but basically it means they could have had wage growth about double what they had over that entire period if we had just done this one thing, get unemployment down by a percentage point on average over the period. Yeah. I mean, it's not a, a lot in one year, but compounded yeah. over 10, it's a lot. Yeah. Right? It's a loss of it's a loss of 10% over the 40-year period. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the single largest factor we estimate. And it's about, you know, almost a fourth of the uh, divergence between, you know, pay and productivity. Yeah. So can I ask a slightly more technical question, guys? So when you did your economic analysis. And you were breaking, trying to figure out when you were doing your analysis of why, 
you know, what, what factors led to this wage suppression? How did you think about things like the minimum wage? So let, let me clarify my question. Because if the minimum wage had tracked productivity gains over the last 45 years, it would be in the $22 range, wouldn't it? Plus or minus, right? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, and clearly, if the minimum wage was not $7.25 an hour today or $2.13 plus tips for tip workers, but $22 plus tips, we'd have a very different economy. And the minimum wage would have contributed mightily to workers' wages keeping up with productivity gains. So how, like when you do your analysis, how do you rank the minimum wage as one policy in in the scope of how much people got screwed by? Do you know what I mean? Like, how did you- Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a- Hard question to pose, but I, I think you get my intent. Yeah. I think it, I think it's a very straightforward question. Uh, the, the, you know, if you want to pick one policy that's very identifiable, that it is a choice that clearly hurt workers, it would be the failure to raise the minimum wage. And we 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 look at two things. So one of the things we do is we try to account for how does the the, the typical or median worker do. That's the worker who earns more than half the others and less than half the others, yeah. right? Uh, where we think the minimum wage had its biggest impact is that we think it devastated the bottom third. And it accounts for all, basically most of, or all of the inequality that emerged between a low wage worker and a middle wage worker. Because that mostly happened in the 1980s when the minimum wage was frozen, inflation was high. And basically by the end of the 1980s, the minimum wage was not affecting anybody's wage. So. Uh, it, it is it is huge uh, for that. Some people might think that the minimum wage minimum wage had if it had been indexed, like the productivity would have really affected the the median wage, and that would be uh, a different thing. But what we think are the the largest uh, are the ones that Josh talked about, which were the corporate globalization, the erosion of unions, uh, the excessive unemployment, and those by themselves, basically sabotage the wages of a typical worker by at least $5 an hour. Explains more than half of uh, the divergence. And we also look at issues like workers being misclassified as independent contractors instead of uh, you know, workers. We, the, the erosion of the overtime threshold, which I know you've been uh, you know, focused on. You know, there's the issue of the fissuring of the economy where big companies contract out all sorts of work so that they can, um, you know, basically take the profits and the wages from the supplier chain and bring it to the bigger company. When you account for all those, we think we can account for uh, at least three fourths of the entire uh, divergence. And then there's other things that we look at that where we don't have a quantitative measure, like the fact that, you know, we have left undocumented workers without any uh, worker rights. You know, the fact that um, there's forced arbitration agreements affecting more than 50% of the workforce. We don't know what the wage impact of those things are, but we know they mattered. So, you know, we think pretty confidently that we can quantify the vast majority of what happened. And then there's stuff we can't quantify, which can easily explain uh, the rest. So that what, what people need to appreciate, what we hope the listeners can appreciate is that this didn't happen by accident, that this was the intentional result of policy decisions. It was enabled by our 
economics profession, which was wedded to a neoliberal model that seemed dismissive of the needs and concerns of, of, of workers, and that, that that created the inequality. And what this means is that what has happened didn't have to happen. It means that it doesn't have to happen going forward. Going forward, if people are organized politically, put pressure on the policymakers, and they get policymakers to pay attention to increasing the power of people individually and collectively in the labor market vis-a-vis -vis their employers, then we can have shared prosperity going forward. And I'm happy to report that I think that that is kind of the agenda that we're seeing from this administration, which is very different than every administration that I've observed uh, in my adult lifetime. And I, I, my first vote for president was in 1972. So it's been a really long time without feeling like anybody yeah. uh, in power in Washington, D.C. really wanted to focus on workers getting a better deal. Uh, I'm, I'm confused, though, Larry, because... My understanding was that if uh, if American workers, these lazy American workers, just taught themselves how to code, we wouldn't have any of this uh, <laughs> inequality. But but you looked at that, right? The so-called skills gap. Yeah, there there is a conventional wisdom uh, that says that it was uh, technology and automation that led to employers needing more skilled workers. Workers weren't skilled enough, therefore they were left behind. And so it's really all about automation, which is something that you, uh, you can't affect, nor would you want to affect. And the fact is that there's, uh, even the proponents of that have provided the evidence that the, over the last 25 years, it's clearly not plausible. I'll give you a couple reasons why. You know, one is, that this theory is supposed to work by raising the wages of people with a college degree relative to other people. But in fact, that didn't happen so much over the last 25 years. It happened very little. The wages of college graduates didn't do very well in the 2000s. We know that automation itself actually didn't happen very fast in the last uh, 10, 20 years. In fact, it could be seen as uh, being slower than at any time in the last 150 years, based on a lot of metrics like how much computer equipment, software is, is invested in the workplace. That was very, very slow. Yeah, well, why invest in capital equipment when you're paying poverty wages? Exactly. No incentive. Yeah, this but also right. this automation thing ignores the what happened to the top 1%. The top 1% saw their wages rise by 165% since 1979. The top 0.1%, the top 1,000%, the wages were up 340%. So are they, these are the people that were just good at using computers? No, that wasn't it. They're the executives who raked it in. It's the finance sector who raked it in. Well, I can, I can tell you that if uh, in our office, the person who was most skilled at using computers had the most money, it wouldn't be Nick. <laughs> For sure. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, there are a couple of, prevailing orthodoxies that this research contravenes. One of them is this, this skills gap or what we call educationism, which is this dumb idea that if you're poor, it's because, you know, you just did, it's the teacher's union's fault or something like that, that you didn't get enough education. Uh, and the other is automation and globalization, that if we, if we didn't have this pesky global economy, 
everybody would still be rich. And, you know, one of the, I think you guys can speak to this. One of the reasons we know that's not true is there are lots of countries in the world that are part of the global economy and they have not suffered the kind of economic inequality that we have, right? They, they had different arrangements. The U.S. really stands out in the degree to which wages have become more unequal and the degree to which the share of income going to labor has fallen. So we, we really stand out. It's not really true that this happened all across uh, advanced nations. It very ha- heavily happened in the United Kingdom and it very hap- uh, heavily happened in, in the United States. And they both were subject to these neoliberal policies. Right, right, absolutely. Right. So the big news coming out of this report is that the, as I understand it, is that the, the rising and radical inequality we've had over the past 40 years is the result not of you know, structural changes in the underlying economy, but in deliberate policy choices that we made that intentionally suppressed wages and disempowered workers. That's the bad news. We've had 40 years of bad policy choices. This brings us to the good news. If you can make bad policy choices, (laughs) then you can also make good policy choices. Uh, I'm wondering, Josh, what might we do to reverse this trend and set things right? I think you're exactly right. The good news is this is reversible. It would actually be much worse news if this really was just sort of the sad outcome of sort of technological change, doing stuff to the deep structural parameters of the economy that'd be tougher to lean against. This one, we just know all the levers we can start pulling that actually restore some leverage and bargaining power to to typical workers to start with stop with keeping unemployment at excessively high levels in the name of fighting phantom inflation. Actually wait until you see inflation become problematic before you um, start going at it. I think Larry mentioned this before. I think we've made huge progress on that front. Like Jerome Powell has been really stubborn that you're not gonna bully him into raising interest rates based on sort of hand-waving about inflation. He's gonna see it before he does it. And if he can stand his ground on that, that, that'll be a huge win. I think we also see, you know, lots of support, much greater, more vocal and even more institutional support for a pretty fundamental reform of labor law coming from the Biden administration than we saw in the Obama administration. And I think that reflects a couple things. But I think one of the things it really does reflect, and this is sort of good news and, you know, this and $5 will get you a latte. But I do think there's been an intellectual shift on this as well from a lot of the sort of center left policy wonk class. I think in 2008, if you surveyed that class and asked them about inequality, they would have mostly told you a technology story and said institutions matter is a little bit of a sideshow. And of course, we want to do things to help unions, but that's because there are special interest friends and you do things. Yeah, there are donors. Exactly. But it doesn't move the dial. We know it moves the dial. It's these deep, long running trends. And now I think they've been convinced by the evidence that, oh, no, this is not special interest, nothing. This is the story. This is how you roll back inequality. And so I think that's been a big shift and hopefully that will matter going forward. Can I add some things to this about what's going on with politics? Because Josh is exactly right. But also consider what the Biden administration did with their very first piece of legislation. People paid attention to what are the components of that, but they seemed to miss that it was a huge bit of spending and that is expected to quickly drive us to unemployment as low as three and a half percent by the end of 2022. That's a real commitment. It's a real commitment in the face of a lot of moderates and conservatives saying, oh, no, you can't do that. You're going to stimulate the economy too much. But what the administration did was said, 
well, there may be a risk, but we're we're taking the risk. We want to make sure that the risk is workers are going to be okay and better. And if something else happens, okay. And then, you know, Josh is right. There's real real tension to worker power through unions. There's a there's a tension to raise the minimum wage. There's a tension to worry about the misclassification of gig workers. They're going to change the overtime threshold. They're going to do, you know, every which policy you can to change labor standards in support of workers they're doing. They're, they're mandating a high minimum wage on federal contractors. All those kinds of things is very uh, intentional. Uh, in, and to reverse all the things we identified, there are policies that are being proposed, some by executive action, some have been passed, some could be passed. The biggest limitation I see is the fact that there's not enough uh, progressive votes in the Senate. And it's not the intentions of the administration. And I think that people on the center left have to look in the mirror and say, why is it we don't have more people there? Because we really need them. Yeah, every time uh, uh, President Biden says he's building the economy from the middle out, I like my heart flutters. I just, sure, <laughs> just like sure. yeah. I, every time, every time President Biden says middle out, an angel gets yeah, exactly. Let, let, uh, okay, let, let's close up with our, uh, our, our usual question, Nick. You want to sure. ask it? Uh, why do you guys do this work? Oh, I, since I was a young man, I've been thought that there was an imbalance of power, mostly rooted in what's happening in the workplace and to workers, and that it is bad for our democracy, it's bad for the workers, it's bad for the nation. And I put my shoulder to the wheel many years ago. I spent many years as a trade union economist. I helped build up the progressive think tank. That's the Economic Policy Institute since 1987. And, um, you know, it's basically to to get shared prosperity for everybody in in low income and middle income wages and and income. And um, I think we may see something that I, I never expected to see. And I think we may see some positive results. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Josh, you got to go. <laughs> I mean, all that. I, I got into this because life is so unbelievably unfair, and our economy is even more unfair than that. And uh, and as privileged as I am, I suffer a lot. I distress all the time about what's going to happen to my family economically. It is like the number one thing I think about, and I am in a better position than like ninety eight percent of Americans and ninety nine point nine percent of people in the globe. So, yeah. Life is just super unfair and it does not have to be. It can be better for people. Um, And so that's why I do this work. Okay, guys. Well, this has been fantastic. Um, Congratulations again on the research. And uh, we will talk to you soon again, I hope. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much for this. So Nick, when you wrote about the RAND report, you referred to this upward redistribution of income as the $50 trillion elephant in the room. And uh, I was struck how Josh also made an elephant metaphor in in talking about his (laughs) report. Right, right, the the fable of the elephant where you have uh, blind people feeling uh, the elephant and, you know, one feels the trunk and another its toe, another its tail or its ear, and they can't quite figure out that between them that it's an elephant because they're all feeling their individual parts. And and that's a great metaphor uh, for the difference between these two reports. Rand gave us this big picture 
of what happened. And uh, uh, EPI has just pieced together that elephant for us. That's right. That's right. These things, the elements that they put together were, were you know, understood in some circles. But the real trick here is to put it all together and paint a, bit, a broad picture of what actually happened to the economy over the last 45 years. It's very instructive. Right. And, and to be clear, you know, what they found that they could... They could actually assess down to a percentage, a dollar value, how much of these policies cost median workers. And the big takeaway is, is that there were a series of intentional policy decisions that were made uh, in Congress by executive action in the White House, in state legislatures around the country and in corporate boardrooms that have ended up suppressing wages and creating, they could account for about three quarters of right. this gap in income between median workers and uh, the top 1%. And it turns out, had we not made those policies, those intentional policies to suppress wages, the median worker would be making about $10 an hour more That's than right. they are now. That's uh, right. And as we said on it, for a two-worker family for, for in a household, that would be over $41,000 per yeah. household, which in the end, Nick, is not much different than what the RAND report felt. Yeah. In terms yeah. of no, household income. It's very, very income. similar. Yeah. Where we talk about it, you know, nearly a doubling of household income. Yes, exactly. So in the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, uh, we get to talk to a fascinating guy, uh, a very wealthy guy from Denmark, who's the founder of Millionaires for Humanity, Jafar Shalchi, uh, who's going to talk about how the American dream is actually found in Denmark. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.